Good evening, everyone. The topic today, or tonight, the pre-advent judgment of Daniel chapter 7. <clears throat> now, this is an exposition of Daniel 7, 9 to 28. Not verse by verse, but the three divisions of this chapter. Three divisions. And notice the divisions. Daniel 1 to 14 verses 15 to 22 and 23 to 27. Those are the three divisions of this chapter. Deliberately divided by heaven. And uh, in these three divisions, it's interesting to notice what we have. The first division, we have the four beasts. What are they? Number one, the lion. What next? The bear, the leopard, and the nondescript. Some believe that could be classed as the dragon. And maybe, maybe they're right. Uh, so that's the first thing we have in the first section. The second thing we have are the... What have I got here? Oh, yes, the four kingdoms. No, pardon me, we go this way. <laughs> Not that way. This is the first division. Four beasts. Then we have the ten horns that come out of the fourth beast, remember. Then uh, from among the ten horns comes forth a little horn. That's right. He comes up after the ten. And he reigns. And then comes the judgment. And we have a glorious picture there of the judgment. One of our scholars reckons that that picture of the judgment... Uh, is almost equal to the glory of the second advent. And it could be too when you think of it. Well, notice what it says in Daniel chapter 7. He, he says that we really have not, not dealt with these verses and this picture that's given us uh, in a proper way. Verse 9, I beheld till the thrones were cast down or positioned. And the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like the pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and the Hebrew, its wheels. What's it say? As burning fire. What a scene this is. And Ellen White saw this, remember, in vision. She saw the Father rise up, in the first apartment, and step into a fiery chariot. And he was conveyed into the second apartment of the sanctuary. Now, we all know the speed of the angels, don't we? You know what that says to me? It speaks of the vastness of that sanctuary. Vast. And here's the picture of the Father going in state into the second apartment of the sanctuary. A tra great transference. And notice what it says. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. Must be a pretty big sanctuary, brethren. How many is that? Millions. Millions of angels are there. That's how big it is. You see? And 
10,000 times 10,000, what's that? That's 100 million, isn't it? Stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. I tell you what a scene. And it's Mervyn Maxwell says, we really haven't dealt with this properly. And I think he's right. Glorious scene. And he says it could be equal to the second coming in glory. Might be. At any rate, so that's this, this picture, you see, of the judgment. And down to, it comes down to verse 14. Verse 13 tells us that after it's all set, there comes in, there's brought into the judgment who? The Son of Man. The Son of Man. A term for the Messiah which is conveyed into the, into the New Testament. The Son of Man. And then the next thing is, it, it, this gives us is the reward. Now I notice the reward. In verse 13 and 14. Verse 14. And there was given him, that's to the Son of Man, dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all nations, people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Now here the reward is given to Christ. See that? Given to Christ. And the judgment concerns Christ here. He's brought in as the great advocate in the judgment. So that's the first section of Daniel 7. Now let's have a look at the second section, verses 15 to 22. And what do we have here? First of all, the four kingdoms, not the four beasts, but the four kingdoms explained. The four beasts represent four kingdoms, and then it especially dwells upon the fourth kingdom. Now, you know, the Bible is written, much of it was written on the principle of repetition and enlargement. Have you heard that before? Repetition and enlargement. Here's the principle here. Whenever it goes over it, whenever it repeats it, it enlarges on it. So much of the scripture is written on that principle. So here we have an enlargement of the four beasts. They are explained as the four kingdoms and, and it, it concentrates on the fourth beast, the fourth kingdom in particular. And what was the fourth kingdom? Rome, that's right. Imperial Rome. Now, the, next, the second thing, the ten horns are now explained as ten kings or kingdoms. See, it's added to, enlarged. Then... The little horn, again, is spoken of as the little horn, but it represents another king or kingdom that rises up amongst the ten. It goes into detail, describing it, identifying it, you see. And then after that little horn comes the judgment again. But now notice what it says about the judgment here. It, it's different. And why is it different? The judgment, look at verse 22. It says, uh, verse 21 rather, I beheld and the same horn made war with the saints and prevailed against them until the Ancient of Days came, speaking of the judgment, when he comes into the Holy of Holies, came and judgment was given to whom? To the saints of the Most High. Judgment is, 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 involves the sun here, but in this one... Judgment is given, it says, to the saints, or as some translations put it, judgment was in favour 
of the saints. In favour of the saints. At least two versions render it like that. In favour of the saints. That's very important because, as you know, the new theology tries to tries to make out from Daniel 7 that there's no judgment concerning the saints. But there it is, right there. Right there. They say the judgment of Daniel 7 is the little horn. But here, in the second section, it concerns the saints. Judgment was given in favour of the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possess the kingdom. Now notice this is different again. Here, Christ is given the kingdom, but in this one, the saints are given the kingdom. Is that a contradiction? No. Christ receives the kingdom, and what does he do with it? He shares it with his people, the great sharer. So here we have... This brought to view, the reward. The saints receive their reward in the judgment, you see. Okay, now let's come to the third, the third division. And we have the fourth, just the fourth kingdom only. You see, it goes into detail concerning the fourth kingdom, Imperial Rome. Then it deals with the ten kingdoms again, Western Europe. Then it deals with a little horn, and here it goes into a many, many extra details concerning the little horn. And all those details, specifications, indicate that it's only one power, as you know, and that is the papacy. And so it is so clear, the little horn, right there. And then, after that, the, the judgment. The judgment. Now notice, the judgment in the third in the third section, is a different again. And what does it say here about this judgment? Verses 23 to 27. And it says, But, while well, speaking of the little horn, first of all, in verse 25, he shall speak great words against the Most High and wear out the saints of the Most High and think to change times and laws. And they, the saints and the times and laws, shall be given into his hand until time, times, and the dividing of time. But the judgment shall sit and shall take away his dominion to consume and destroy it to the end. So here is the judgment of the little horn. You see that? So first of all, it's Christ, the saints, and the little horn. When the new theology say that Daniel 7 deals with the judgment of the little horn, they're one-third right, two-thirds wrong. Two-thirds wrong. And then notice, finally, the rewards in the third section. And what does it say? And the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High, whose kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, etc. So here again, it's given to the saints. The reward is for the saints, you see. Now, why does the Lord divide up this chapter like that? Three times. It goes over the same territory. Three times. Why does he do this? So often scripture does this. It goes over it, it repeats it. Friends, here is a principle brought to view. 
Three in Scripture denotes authenticity. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, this is spoken of. Numbers 35.30, Deuteronomy 17.6, 19.15. In the New Testament, Matthew 18.16, 2 Corinthians 13.1, Hebrews 10.28. Now what does it say? In the mouth of two or three witnesses is a thing. What's the next word? Established. You see, and this was very, very important to the Jews. They knew this. And the three times indicates the establishment of the truth of it. You know, it's on this basis that we say we do not build a doctrine on one text of Scripture in the mouth of two or three witnesses is a thing established. We should have at least two texts that confirm each other before we start building a doctrine. You see? Safeguard. Authenticity. So that's the reason for this. So here we have got the Lord uh, establishing the truth of the judgment and of other things here in this great chapter. And uh, three times this judgment is emphasized, three times. The first one involves the setting up of the court for judgment. And as I said before, a glorious scene. And as the Revised Standard Version says, the court sat in judgment. Isn't that how it goes? The court sat in judgment. Slightly different, but nevertheless true. And Christ receives his kingdom. All right, now from there, we want to, we, we, I want to now take you to the question, why is the little horn involved? This has been a problem. Why is the little horn involved? If this is the pre-advent judgment, and it is, why the little horn? Why is it involved? And this is a, has been a vexing question through the years, but now our scholars have looked into this and they have brought forth an answer, and I think it's a satisfactory answer. And, and it's this, the pre-advent judgment involves only the professed people of God. Is that right? It doesn't involve the unsaved. It involves only those who have professed Christ. Let me ask you, has the papacy professed Christ? Of course it has. Very much so. The little horn continually has claimed to be the only true church of God. It has continually posed as the true Christian church. It has a knowledge of the truth. Has it? Well, it has the word of God, like the rest of us. I think you'll find that the Catholic Church knows more than we think they know. Yeah, it has a knowledge of the truth, but it refuses to obey it, you see. And therefore, on those grounds, it would be involved in the pre-advent judgment with a little horn. Now, the next question, when is the time of this judgment? When is the time? It's after the reign of the little horn. And here it tells us how long the horn, little horn would reign. How long? What's the term used? Time, times, and dividing, or half a time. And we all know what that is. 
three and a half prophetic years, which represent 1260 days, for with prophetic time or symbolic time, you always bring it to days. And the number of days you have, that represents what? Years. Yes, that's ABC, the Seventh-day Adventists. All right, so when then did the period of supremacy of the reign of the little horn end? When did the 1260 years end? 1798. I notice that Charles Wheeling tries to make out, you know, that the deadly wound of the papacy was not given in 1798. He doesn't know his history. He doesn't know his history. Um, and he quotes certain authorities, but other th authorities contradict the authorities that he, that he mentions. So in 17, so that means in the judgment comes after 1798. See that? After that time. That's what Daniel 7 reveals. The judgment is after 1798. It doesn't tell us any more as to the time of the judgment. Where do we find the exact time of the start of the judgment? Daniel 8, what verse? 14. That's right. And see, that there you have a repetition. Instead of the first beast, Babylon starts with Medo Persia, Greece, Rome, pagan and papal Rome under the caption of the little horn. Then you have the judgment. And it tells the time of the judgment 2,300 days. Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed, which represents judgment. But Daniel 7 only indicates it's after 1798. But that's quite important. It's after 1798, you see, according to Daniel 7, that the judgment, the, 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 the timing of the judgment. All right, now, the location of this judgment, where is it? Where's this judgment located? <laughs> According to verses 9 and 10, it's before the throne of God. It's before the throne. God the Father is presiding. He is seated. And the angels are there, millions of them. Some say they're the jury. I don't know. But they're there in attendance. Millions are there in attendance. In fact, you know, brethren, what I, I feel myself, that that judgment's been going on since 1844. It's a long time, isn't it? Why so long? Does God need to, to spend all that time? No, he doesn't. What? Why does he? Why? What's the significance of it? Do you know what I believe? I believe that people from the unfallen universe are coming to visit the sanctuary and they're watching the deity in action in connection with the judgment. For the whole universe is deadly interested in this earth and what happens here, isn't it? Very much so, very much. And I believe that, that is, that's this, what goes on there, that great pageant, that drama of the judgment. The whole universe comes and watches the deity in action to see what they're doing in regard to sin, to reveal the justice of God. 
For remember, God must not only be just, what else? He must be seen to be just by the universe. And remember, brethren, the universe, they're very intelligent people, very intelligent. And they cannot be fooled. And so heaven goes to great pains to show the universe that God is just. All right, I'm off my track. Um, I didn't intend to mention that. So the location of the judgment then is in where the throne of God is. It's where the angels are. Where's that? Heaven. You see. And uh, what is the standard of the judgment? James 2 tells us, So speak ye and so do as they that shall be judged. What's it say next? By the law of liberty. What is the law of liberty? Verses further down show it's the great Ten Commandment law. Mankind will be judged by that law. Where was the law in the sanctuary? Or rather, where is the law in the sanctuary? In the holy of holies, that's right. So undoubtedly the judgment is in the holy of holies, the second division of the sanctuary. And what a vast division that must be. You know, I remember a few years ago, uh, the editor of the Signs of the Times in Australia was throwing off about our view of the judgment. And he reckoned that, that the two divisions of the heavenly sanctuary, oh, he says, a couple of dog boxes. A couple of dog boxes. A shocking thing. That's blasphemy to me, brethren. Throwing off about the, the, uh, our view of the heavenly sanctuary. The editor of the Signs of the Times. A couple of dog boxes. Shocking, isn't it? Really shocking. This is what we've had to put up with in Australia. Yeah. And that man was supported by the leaders. <laughs> supported. Yeah. So uh, so much for that then. So the location of the judgment is must be in the second apartment of that vast sanctuary. And remember, the spirit of prophecy speaks of its vastness. It she indicates it's beyond our imagination. Beyond it. So it must be vast. All right. Now the next thing, the scriptures show that the judgment of God, God's judgments are associated with the sanctuary. And maybe you haven't heard this before, but this has been brought out by one of our scholars in a very interesting way. For instance, you know, in the Old Testament, it tells us of how God judged Nadab, Adab, Nadab and Abihu, who, remember, were intoxicated, and they offered strange fire and uh, to the Lord, and the Lord uh, smote them in judgment. And it says, they went out fire from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. And this was in the connection with the sanctuary. They offered strange fire in the sanctuary. And the flame shot out from the sanctuary and devoured them. I tell you, brethren, here we have the, the judgment of God. And we find again and again the sanctuary is involved with the judgment. When uh, Miriam and Aaron, remember, spoke against Moses and his leadership, the Lord uh, intervened and he said to them, Come out 
you three, come out to the tabernacle of the congregation. What was that? First apartment. Come out. And they three came out. And the Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle. That fascinates me. God stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam and they both came forth and he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known to him in a vision and will speak to him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so who is faithful in all mine house. And here the Lord supported Moses. And notice what it says, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against them and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle and behold, Miriam became leprous white as snow. Pretty grim, isn't it? Judgment of God in connection with the sanctuary. And we find again and again in the Old Testament, this brought to view, the judgments of God associated with the sanctuary. When the people, remember, listened to the report of, this, of the ten spies, the evil report, and they murmured, remember, they lifted up their voice and cried, Would to God we'd died in the land of Egypt, or would God... Uh, uh, or or died in this wilderness. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the congregation of the assembly. And Joshua and Caleb tried to intervene. And all the congregation bade stone them with stones. And the glory of God appeared in the tabernacle of the congregation. And the Lord said to Moses, How long will this people provoke me? And then he made the declaration, this generation will not see the land. They'll not see the land. And notice the judgments. And the men which Moses went sent to search the land, who returned and made all the congregation to murmur against him by bringing up a slander upon the land, even those men that did bring up the evil report upon the land died by the plague before the Lord. Judgment and associated with the sanctuary every time. The sanctuary, you see that? And I could go on and on. Um, the rebellion of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, associated with the sanctuary. The 250 princes who supported them, they were destroyed, remember, in connection with the sanctuary. The judgment upon Uzzah in regard to the ark, remember, he touched the ark, associated with the sanctuary. The, and then we have a favourable judgment for the Aaronic priesthood, remember, through the, the rods that were put into the sanctuary to determine who was to be the priesthood. And the judge, God gave judgment, and the judgment was in the sanctuary, in the Holy of Holies. Eli and his family, remember, the judgment that came upon them in connection with the sanctuary, the ark. The Philistines, the judgments that came upon them in connection with the ark associated with the sanctuary. And so we could go on and on. Now we find likewise in the Old Testament in connection with the heavenly sanctuary, the Old Testament clearly states that the ju that judgment by God comes from the heavenly sanctuary. At least there are seven Old Testament passages that declare that God judges from the heavenly sanctuary so when people say that this is something we have invented concerning this judgment and the heavenly sanctuary brethren it indicates they don't know scripture 
And you know, there's much scripture on it that we haven't known either. There's a, much, there's a lot yet to learn about this. It's surprising what's in the scripture on it. I was quite amazed. And uh, the um, controversy, you know, that has come, what has it done? It's driven us to study. And that's why God permits heresy to come in, doesn't, isn't it? That's why he permits it, to drive us to study and to confirm our faith. And brethren, we've got the evidence now that confirms our faith more than ever before as to the correctness of our position in regard to the judgment and the heavenly sanctuary. Notice these, these scriptures concerning judgment and the heavenly sanctuary. Uh, Psalm 9, verse 4, Thou hast maintained my right and my cause. Thou sattest in the throne judging right. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. When he makes inquisition for blood, he remembers them. He forgets not the cry of the humble. See that? Judgment in connection with the heavenly sanctuary. Again, Psalm 11. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try or test the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous. So there we have it again. Heavenly sanctuary. Psalm 76. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. Thou didst cause judgment to be heard from heaven. When God arose to judgment to save all the meek of the earth. See? Judgment. Heaven. The tabernacle. Psalm 102. He hath looked down from the height of his sanctuary from heaven. Did the Lord behold the earth? And verse 20 says, To hear the groaning of the prisoner, to loose those that are appointed to death. Work of judgment in connection with the sanctuary. Again, Psalm 103. The Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Judgment in connection with his throne. Micah 1, 2-5. Let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place, and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel. See that? The Lord judges and in connection with the holy temple. Malachi 3, 1 to 5. This is more familiar to Seventh-day Adventists. I'll send my messenger. And he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts, but who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. All to do with judgment. And in verse 5, he will come near to you to judgment. So there it is again, judgment in connection with the heavenly sanctuary. Brethren, our stand, our interpretation, our doctrine of the heavenly sanctuary stands up in the light of Scripture.
we don't have to beg any pardons. And we need to remember this, brethren, that those outside of us who attack us and claim we have no grounds for our belief on this, they haven't the light. They haven't the light on the judgment. This is an area where there's vast, appalling ignorance as far as they are concerned. And why haven't they got the light? Because they haven't walked in the light. In 1844, the Protestant churches rejected, began to reject truth. What happened? They morally fell and have been falling ever since. And they're falling further and further into darkness. Whereas God's people, following the light, receive more light. That's how we should be today, receiving more light, growing in knowledge all the time. All right, now, not only that, we find this, that the book of Revelation confirms what the Old Testament teaches in regard to judgment and the heavenly sanctuary. I'd invite you to turn now to the 11th chapter of Revelation. The 11th chapter, and I want you to notice here that after the... the uh, First, the, the, the um, first angel's message of Revelation 10. The great disappointment. Remember the book that was eaten and sweet in his uh, mouth and bitter in his belly. After that was over. Then the word comes. 11 verse 1. And there was given to me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, Rise. And measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now what's the significance of this? Rise and measure the temple. My friends, the word measure here is a Greek word, metrason. And when it's applied to a building or object, it means to preserve or restore it. So what the Lord is saying here. Restore the sanctuary. Restore the temple. And how are they going to restore it? There was given unto me a reed like unto a rod. This word reed is canna in the Greek. Canna. We get our English word cannon from it. Not howitzer cannon, <laughs> but C-A-N-O-N, meaning rule, law. And we speak of canon in, concept, in connection with Scripture, the canon of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the law of Scripture. You see? This is the great canon. And what the Lord is saying here, take, there was given, he says, he was given John, or believers, the canon of Scripture. And he says, now, restore the sanctuary. Restore the temple. You see? Now, why did he say restore the temple? Because the knowledge of the temple and the altar had been lost. And how was it lost? Let's turn now to Daniel 8. And I want to bring to you a very interesting segment here that knocks on the head a view that has been resurrected concerning the daily of latter years but will not stand up. And in Daniel 8... Notice this, what it says. Daniel 8, and I read now verse 11. Yea, he magnified himself 
even to the prince of the host. This is speaking of the papacy, the little horn, which is Rome, imperial Rome, and papal Rome combined in this, in this chapter. He magnified himself even to the prince of the host. Who was the prince of the host? Scripture shows the prince of the host was, is Jesus Christ. Without question, Jesus Christ. All right. He magnifies himself to the prince of the host. And by him, now notice the margin of your Bible for by. And in my Bible, it says, or from him. Now, our commentary says it can mean either, by or from. Other Hebrew scholars say no. Dr. Harsel and others at Andrews, and Dr. Harsel, I tell you, brethren, he's now dead. What a scholar. What a scholar. What a sound scholar that man was. He says the Hebrew means from. From the prince of the host will be taken the daily. From him. And I've checked up all the translations I can possibly find, and they all say from. So what it says here, from Christ will be taken away the daily. And that knocks on the head that the daily is paganism. Does Christ possess paganism? Of course not. What is it that Christ has that is continual? That goes on continuously. What is it? When you analyze and go back to the to the, to the Bible and the sanctuary, the continual things there were the con offering, the offerings, the showbread, the, 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 uh, the, the lights, the incense, the ministry of the first apartment. That was the continual. And here the little horn is to take from Christ the continual, the knowledge of Christ's continual mediation. That's been our official view for years now. And it stands up, brethren. It stands up. There's been an attempt to, to re-resurrect the old idea that uh, Uriah Smith put forth, which he got from William Miller. He lived up to the light he had, of course. We don't condemn him. But when he introduces the daily, he says, we may suppose that the daily is paganism. Brethren, that's not good enough for these days. We can't build a doctrine or interpretation on supposition, you see. And he got it from William Miller. And William Miller, of course, didn't have all the light, did he? And when you analyse William Miller's interpret how he got the daily, it doesn't stand up either. Historically, it doesn't stand up, but we haven't got time to go into that. At any rate, so here it tells us why the temple is to be restored and why the altar is to be restored. What altar? The altar of incense. The altar that concerns ministry, the intercession of Christ. It's to be restored because it's been lost, the knowledge of it taken away by the papacy. That's why, you see. So then... Uh, that, that has been taken away, and uh, here is the message to the people of God to restore it. So this means that in the last days, after 1798, the knowledge of the sanctuary is to be 
is to be brought back to God's people. Brought back. Yeah. And it says also then, it says after that, and measure them that worship therein. Not only measure the temple and the altar, but measure them that worship therein. Now, this Greek word, metrosin, when it's used in connection with people, it has a slightly different meaning. It means to evaluate or to judge. See that? And don't get the idea that this is my invention, brethren. This is based on scholarship from whence I get it, you see. It means to evaluate or to judge. So what this means is it's, 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 it's a call to God's people to enter into a work of judgment associated with the heavenly temple. See that? Judgment. So here we have the investigative judgment brought to view in the book of Revelation in connection with the temple. Rise and measure the temple, restore the temple, and evaluate or judge the worshippers therein. What does that mean? What does that mean? Just to know it's a work of judgment. But let's look at now, let's look now at the same chapter, verse nineteen. Verse nineteen of Revelation eleven. And here in the setting it says this. And the temple of God was opened in heaven. This is after 1844, after the great disappointment. Was opened in heaven, and there was seen in his temple. What's seen there? The ark. In all previous glimpses into the temple in heaven in the book of Revelation, the ark is not seen. Instead, there are seen the candlesticks, the incense. And where was that? In the first apartment. We see Christ ministering in the first apartment before God. Not separated from God. For remember, God's presence is not limited to the Holy of Holies, as the new theology says. God's presence is not limited. He can reside or be enthroned in the first apartment as well as the second apartment. And the Old Testament shows that that was true of the type. Often God's presence was in the first apartment of the sanctuary to such a degree that no one could enter. You see. And here now we have a change. We see the deity in action in the second apartment where the ark is and it says there were lightnings and voices and thunderings and an earthquake and great hail. What's that mean? Judgment. The deity in action in connection with judgment. That's what this, that's what this means, you see. So there we have in the book of Revelation the judgment, the heavenly judgment brought to view. And why the ark? Well, we've already discussed that because that's the great standard. Just as in earthly courts, it has to be shown that the, the criminal or the accused has broken the law. The law, remember, is always read out that he is broken, so it will be. So it is, rather, in the heavenly judgment. The law is there to show 
where this man has transgressed, you see. And uh, so there are lightnings, voices, and thunderings. Now, measure or judge them that worship therein. That worship, worship in the heavenly temple. Friends, who worships in the heavenly temple? What did you say? The angels. Does this mean judging the angels? Well, now let's have a look at this. My friends, those who worship in the heavenly temple are the true followers of Jesus Christ. How come? The true believer enters the heavenly temple by faith. Who do we worship? Yeah. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Do we look at him on the cross? In regard to our worship? No, we don't. Where do we look? We look to our great intercessor. And our great intercessor is in heaven. Our minds, our attention is directed to the heavenly sanctuary. Notice what the apostle says in the book of Hebrews. He says, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The word holiest there is tahaki, which means the sanctuary. Having boldness to enter into the sanctuary by the blood of Jesus. What sanctuary? The heavenly sanctuary. By a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. And having an high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. Sprinkled. That harks back to the priest in the sanctuary service, the sprinkling of the blood, the ministry of the priest. You see? The heavenly sanctuary and our bodies washed with pure water. And so it goes on. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So, brethren, we are he called here to enter into the sanctuary. And we enter into the sanctuary by faith. By faith, we follow Jesus into the sanctuary and we visualize Christ as our great high priest ministering on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. And so what it is saying here, measure, judge those, evaluate those who have entered the heavenly sanctuary by faith, the judgment of God's people, you see, the judgment of them. And uh, so those who, brethren, who, who follow Jesus by faith into the heavenly sanctuary are being measured, and we enter into the sanctuary by faith. By faith, we follow Jesus into the sanctuary, and we visualize Christ as our great high priest ministering on our behalf, interceding on our behalf. And so what it is saying here, measure Judge those, evaluate those who have entered the heavenly sanctuary by faith. The judgment of God's people, you see. The judgment of them. And uh, so those who, brethren, who, who follow Jesus by faith into the heavenly sanctuary 
are being measured or judged. You are now being measured and judged. It's interesting how the spirit of prophecy speaks about this. But of course the scripture tells us, doesn't it? For judgment must begin, where? At the house of God, the church. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? It begins with believers. It begins with God's people. God's people who are counted as being in the sanctuary. You see, worshipping in the sanctuary. And of course this confirms Revelation 14, 6 and 7. Fear God and give glory to him. Why? For the hour of his judgment is come. What judgment? The judgment of Daniel 7, brethren. The judgment in the heavenly sanctuary. It's come. And that tells us when the first angel's message went to the world. 1844. For that's when the judgment began. Now the next question. Who is the judge in the judgment? Uh, there is a, a little controversy in Australia now. The new theology is pushing the view that God's not the Father's not the judge, it's Christ that's the judge. And of course this has been taught in the past, this is not new. What's the truth about this? Well when we read Daniel chapter 7, 9 to 10, who is pictured there as the judge, enthroned as the judge? It's the Father, the Ancient of Days. He presides in the judgment. You see, well, how come then that Jesus said in John 5, 22, the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment to the Son? Interesting statement. All judgment the Father has committed to the Son. You see? And brethren, when we look at the sanctuary picture here of Daniel 7, remember when the court is set in judgment and the father there as the president of the judgment is presiding, it doesn't begin, remember, until there is brought in by the angels described as the clouds of heaven. They bring in the Son of Man. Now it's not till the Son of Man comes that the judgment begins. Now this is very significant. Remember, what is, the, what's, what is the purpose of the Son of Man in the judgment? Well, 1 John 2, 1, If any man sin, we have an advocate. Yeah, an advocate with the Father. You see, Jesus Christ the righteous. Well, then how then is judgment committed to the Son? Revelation 3, 5, it says, He that overcometh, you know how it goes, we'll miss out the first part of the verse, I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. When the books are open, brethren, and Jesus comes in as the great advocate, he takes the names of his people one by one. He started, remember, with Adam. You know, there are some people who find this very difficult to accept. They say, oh, I can't imagine the great God 
going through this exercise. Let me ask you, has God got to do it? No, he doesn't. God knows all things. God doesn't require any judgment at any time. He knows all things. But remember, what's the problem? It's the universe. It's the unfallen universe. For they must be shown that not only is God just, but that he seemed to be just. As I said before, and this is the purpose for this judgment. And I believe, it's a personal belief, I wouldn't be dogmatic about it, that the universe come in, you know, and they witness the judgment in that vast sanctuary. Thousands and thousands minutes and there they watch the deity in action. And so they deal with the names. And Christ takes the first name, or whatever order, whatever name, num uh, time or, or uh, place the name is. What does he do? Does he plead every name that's in the book? No, he doesn't. What names does he plead for? He that overcomes. See that? The man who hasn't overcome, Christ, is silent. And in that sense, Jesus is the judge. In that sense. You see? Let me read some other scriptures. Luke 12, 8 and 9. Whosoever shall confess me before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Notice the term Son of Man comes from Daniel 7. Ties it up, you see. If we confess him before men, him shall the Son of Man also confess before the angels of God. Again, Luke 9, 26. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and of my words, of him shall the Son of Man, what's it say? Be ashamed. My friends, if we're ashamed of Christ on this earth, there'll be no pleading for us in the judgment. No pleading. Serious, isn't it? Yeah. So in that sense, Jesus, you see, determines, determines whose name is kept in the book. Hmm? Judgment's committed to the Son, you see. And uh, remember the scripture says, his Hebrews 7.24, wherefore he's able to save them to the uttermost, meaning completely that come to God by him seeing he ever lives to make intercession. And brethren when Jesus intercedes for you he intercedes for you in such a way that complete salvation is yours. Marvelous. We have nothing to fear brethren nothing to fear if Jesus takes our name his father beautiful isn't it yeah so he determines for whom he pleads in the judgment so the father presides in the judgment but the son determines for whom he pleads 
So the question now is, how may I survive the judgment? How may I survive the judgment? As professed Christians, we cannot escape it. Every one of us are going to come up for judgment. Let me read again the, chap- the verse in John in Revelation 3.5. He that overcomes, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, etc. We must be overcomers. Now the next question, how does the believer overcome? How does he overcome? Two steps are involved in overcoming. Revelation 12.11, which was quoted today, it says they overcame him. By the blood of the Lamb. That's the first way we overcome. What do we overcome by the blood? We overcome the guilt of sin. We overcome the condemnation of the law by the blood. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. All sin. So, brethren, that's how we overcome guilt and condemnation through the blood or because of the blood or on the basis of the blood as it can be rendered. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood or loosed us, is the Greek, in his own blood. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What next? and to cleanse us from some of our unrighteousness. Yeah, from all unrighteousness. And that means, brethren, when I accept Christ and apply the blood, I then stand before God as though I have never sinned. Could you wish for anything better than that? Marvellous. So that's how we overcome condemnation and guilt. And can stand before God as though we've never sinned. That's the first one. Now, in connection with this, will we still consider ourselves sinners? Should we still consider ourselves sinners? Should you consider yourself a sinner? You've accepted Christ and you stand before him as though you've never sinned. Now, I think we need to be very careful here. And I want to read a couple of texts. I've had some who aren't happy with what I say about this, but listen to this, 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Is that true? Do you think that you can say you have no sin in you? We have a sinful nature, brethren. A sinful nature. We dare not say we're without sin. If anyone ever accosts us as to that question, always, I'm a sinner, saved by grace. Put ourselves in the same place, especially when we're working for other people. Put ourselves in the same situation they are as they. We're all sinners in need of the grace of or the blood of Christ. See, the blood, always the blood. First uh, John one ten. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. 
we should always be conscious of the fact that we have a sinful nature and it's dangerous <laughs> and that means we should never trust ourselves do you trust yourself if you do brethren you better do some thinking we dare not trust ourselves because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's talking about the sinful nature, brethren, the sinful nature. And all of our good works, all of our good intentions, the spirit of prophecy tells us are infected with self. Listen to it. When I first read this, it almost shocked me, but it's so true. You listen. She says here, the religious services, the prayers, the praise, the penitent confession of sin ascend from true believers as incense to the heavenly sanctuary. But passing through the corrupt channels of humanity, they are so defiled that unless purified by blood... They can never be of value with God. That's a tremendous statement, isn't it? No matter what we do, no matter what our prayers are like and our confessions, there's always got to be the blood with it, the purifying blood of Christ. And then it goes on. All incense from earthly tabernacles must be moist with the cleansing drops of the blood of Christ. He holds before the Father the censer of his own merits in which there is no taint of earthly corruption. He gathers into the censer the prayers, the praise and the confessions of his people and with these he puts his own spotless righteousness. Then perfumed with the merits of Christ's propitiation, the incense comes up before God holy and entirely acceptable. Then gracious answers are returned. You know, brethren, we should always be applying the blood. Never let us tire of applying the blood. Every day we should apply the blood. Every day. Because we all are tainted in some shape or form with self. Is that right? I tell you it's right, brethren. It's right. Here am I. I'm nearly 80 years of age. You know, I still have to battle with self. I still have to battle with self. The sinful nature is still there, you see. And this brings us to the question, how long, for how long will the saints require the blood? For how long, until when will we apply the blood? You know this statement, Acts of the Apostles, listen to this. And now I want to quote this because this is misapplied, misused by, the, by the, the new theology. Notice what it says. As long as Satan reigns, we shall have self to subdue 
besetting sins to overcome. And that is used by the new theology to try and show we'll be sinning till the second advent. Does it? When does Satan's reign cease? Close of probation. Where's your proof? Revelation 11. 11 again, where the sanctuary is brought to view. Remember the temple? And notice what it says. And where was our reading? Oh, yes, verse, verse 14, 15. And the seventh angel, what's the seventh angel? The seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded, and there were great voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Christ reigns, my friends, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. That's when Satan reign, Satan's reign ends. And what this means then is that until the close of probation, we will have, what does it say? We shall have self to subdue. Self to subdue. Let's never forget it. That's why we should never say we're sinless. Never. You see. And of course, as you know, we are under attack on our position of perfection of character. We're right in that, but it's misrepresented. And you know, our, a lot of our top men are attacking us on this. Attacking us but incorrectly. And so, my friend, Satan's reign ceases at the close of probation. And remember Daniel 12, 1 says, at that time shall Michael stand up or reign and there shall be a time of trouble such as never was. The close of probation. That's when Michael reigns. That's when Christ reigns and the devil's reign ceases, you see. So, that's the first step. Now, coming to the second step and overcoming. The first step, we've dealt with the blood. The blood. The second step. And they overcame him by the word of their testimony. What's that mean? The word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto the death. Their testimony. What's testimony? One's witness. One's confession concerning what Jesus Christ has done for him. That's what a testimony is, a verbal testimony. Not only a verbal testimony, but a life testimony based on one's personal experience, based on one's life and character. Remember Paul, he gave a testimony Romans 1.16, he said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, of Jesus Christ, for it is, what did he say it was? It's the power of God unto salvation, and his life was a demonstration of it. What a change in that man. You see? And there's the testimony, the testimony. And brethren, this is how we overcome by out the change in our character. Salvation is from sin's guilt and what else? From sin's power. 
sin's power. And overcoming includes both. It includes sin's guilt, but it also involves overcoming sin's power. Sin's power, and that is historic Seventh-day Adventism. That is spirit of prophecy. That is Bible. And overcoming sin's power centers in victory over self. Self-exaltation, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness, self-love, self-serving, self-preservation. And brethren, till the close of probation, we will be battling self in some shape or form. Every single one of us battling it. So long as Satan reigns, we shall have self to subdue. But here it is. All right. What attitude then is essential for overcoming? And here we come to a very important point, our final point. What attitude is essential? First John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world. And what is it? Even our faith. Now, this has to do with attitude. Even our faith. My friends, we must believe that by the grace of God we can overcome. We've got to believe it. The problem with many is that they feel that they're not overcoming. And we all have that feeling, don't we, at times? We all do, you see? But here the Lord says, we overcome the world by faith. We are to keep believing that God will do it. Believe, believe, believe. Faith. And faith, my friends, is the opposite of feeling. We've got to watch our feelings. We must not depend on our feeling in regard to our relationship with God. Let me ask you. Enoch walked with God. Did he feel righteous? Did he? Do you think he feel, felt that he had arrived? Never in your life. Never in your life. I guess his own opinion of himself was a very low one. He walked with God. And as we all know, the closer a man gets to God, what's his estimation of himself? the lower his estimation is. Let's remember that. Don't trust our feelings. Our feelings lie so often. Lie. You see? When you have your battle with your feelings, then use your faith and say, Lord, I do belong to you, and I'm trusting you. And the hymn says, remember, I'm trusting thee, Lord Jesus. Trusting. Only thee, trusting thee for full salvation, great and free. That's the secret. It's trusting, trusting, trusting. And brethren, let me tell you, if you trust and believe it's possible that God's, you know, God responds to that. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And when you exercise faith like that, you please God. You please him. He likes it. He responds. 
So remember, don't trust your feelings. Don't trust them. We walk by faith, not by sight. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. God help us, my friends, to believe and trust and trust and trust, no matter what. Let's bow in prayer. Dear God, we thank Thee once more for Thy truth. We thank Thee for the great judgment that is now on, in which we're all involved. We thank Thee that the Lord Jesus is there making intercession for us. O oh God, help us, we pray, to be overcomers. Help us to apply the blood that all condemnation may be taken away, all guilt. And dear Lord, help us to trust Thee to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Hear us then. This is our prayer tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen.